Welcome to today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for January 25th, 2023. I'm your reader, Nicole Tam. Here's our first story. The title is School Choice Law Passes, Iowa Lawmakers Okay Public Money for Private School Students, and Lawmakers Support School Bill, Sexton Backed Amendments. The article is written by Bill Shea. All three state lawmakers serving Webster County supported the plan to allow state money to be placed in accounts to pay for tuition at parochial and private schools. State Senator Tim Cranbank, Brink, a Republican from Fort Dodge, and State Representatives Ann Meyer, a Republican from Fort Dodge, and Mike Sexton, a Republican from Rockwell City, all voted for the proposal. But Sexton worked for changes in the proposal before he agreed to vote for it. A former president of the Rockwell City Linton and South Central Calhoun School Boards, Sexton has been critical of similar plans introduced in the legislature during the previous two years. Before we get to more on this article, there is an image of Governor Kim Reynolds greeting school children before signing that bill that created that education savings account at the state house. Again, any Iowa student who wants to attend a private school could use public money to pay for tuition or other expenses under the plan that was approved early Tuesday by the legislature, making the state the third to pass a measure that allows such spending with few restrictions. Let's look deeper into this story now under lawmakers on page number six as I make my way to that page. Um, The article on this page starts with a quote. As a legislator, I saw this bill coming down the tracks, he said. I started working with the floor managers and the leadership to get things going, to get things that were good for rural schools. I knew I couldn't stop this bill, he added. The governor was adamant. The people that wanted this bill were adamant. One of the major additions to the bill that he worked to obtain extends the amount of time that districts can get extra money if they share a superintendent or other personnel. That funding for what is called operational sharing was to expire in two years. The amendment Sexton worked for will extend the funding for an additional 10 years. Sexton said that after the provisions he wanted were added, he agreed to vote for that bill. For Cranbrink, deciding to vote for that bill was a much easier choice. I've been pretty consistent throughout my time in the Senate, and even as a candidate, that I've been pro-school choice, he said. It isn't really about public versus private, he added. It's about what's best for the kids. That has always been my position. I hope and I surely believe that this is not going to hurt or decimate our public schools, the senator said. Meyer couldn't be reached for comment on Tuesday evening, but in her weekly newsletter, she announced that she would vote for the bill. She wrote that the program would cost $341 million when fully implemented in fiscal year 2027. She said the state is expected to spend $3.9 billion on public education that year. Maya wrote that she placed her son in private school and had no financial barriers to doing so. I think all families should have that choice, especially single parents who simply can't afford it, she wrote. They can't budget for it. There just isn't enough income. Many parents will choose public schools because our public schools are great, but those who cannot afford it deserves that option. We all pay taxes. Both Karen Brink and Sexton said that they do not think that the law violates the principle of separation between church and state, even though the money can be used to pay for tuition at a parochial school. Karen Brink said that the money will be placed into educational savings accounts for students, and the parents of those students decide what the school it will be paid to. Or rather, those parents of those students decide what school it will be paid to. Sexton noted that the continuous nature of the bill— 
People are very divided on this, he said. People who support the school vouchers are adamant, and people that are opposed to it are adamant. There's really no gray area. The House started debating the bill early in the day on Monday. The Senate took it up later on that day. Karen Brink says that the Senate Democrats then went into caucus, which is a closed-door meeting of legislators from one party, for four to five hours. He said there was speculation that the Senate Democrats did not think there were enough votes in the House of Representatives to pass this bill, so they went into caucus hoping it would fail in the House and not come up in the Senate. We're prepared to go however long it took, Karen Brink said. We just kind of sat around for five hours. The bill passed the House at 9:20 p.m., and the Senate then began debating it. Karen Brink described the rest- resulting debate as the quote showroom of the way debate should happen. The Senate passed the bill at 12:30 a.m. on Tuesday. Karen Brink said that no one should be surprised that the bill became law. He said it was a quote very, very high priority for Governor Kim Reynolds. He says she talked about it constantly during the 2022 campaign. She also got involved in Republican primary elections, campaigning against House members who opposed it. Her efforts helped to get them defeated and provided the votes needed to get the bill passed in the House. The Senate, Karen Brink added, had passed some version of the school choice bill twice previously. Sexton said that finishing the contentious bill makes it possible for lawmakers to focus on other issues. Now we can focus on the rest of the session, he said. That was sucking all of the oxygen out of the Capitol. Now to another story on the school choice bill. This one titled "Local School Officials React to New Law." This article is by Kelby Wingwert and Robin Opsall. This is with the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Local leaders in public K through 12 schools woke up on Tuesday morning with news that the state legislature had passed the Student First Act, or the so-called School Choice Bill, and was sending it to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk to sign. The Iowa Senate approved House File 68 early Tuesday on a 31 to 18 vote. Three Republicans, Senators Lynn Evans, Charlie McClintock, and Tom Shipley, joined Senate Democrats in voting against the bill. The Senate debate directly followed the Iowa House passing the legislation 54 to 45 at 9 p.m. Nine Republicans voted against the bill, along with all House Democrats. Similar legislation failed in the House in the past two years. The bill was Governor Kim Reynolds' top priority for the 2023 legislative session. She signed the bill at the state capitol at 11 a.m. on Tuesday. The bill will provide Iowa students with $7,598 each year to use for private school tuition and associated costs. All public school students will be eligible to use an educational savings account or ESA starting in the 2023 to 2024 school year. Students currently attending private schools must meet income limits to qualify in the first two years of the program. All private school students would be eligible in the third year. Public school districts will receive an estimated twelve hundred dollars and five twelve hundred and five dollars for each student living within the boundaries of their district who attend a private school, even if they've never enrolled in a public school. That math doesn't add up for the state's public school districts, and there are still a lot of unknowns. Fort Dodge Community School District Board of Education President Stu Cortrain says. The reality is, we don't know for certain what sort of impact this will have. He said, "There are nuances to this, nuances to this bill that have not been included in prior bills. There are some categorical funding deficits that we don't yet know how it will, 
Oops, this is uh, sorry. This is going on to page number two in the middle of this quote. So let me repeat that quote. There are nuances to this bill that have not included in prior bills. There are some categorical funding deficits that we don't know yet how it will shake out. A bigger concern is the overall impact on finances available to schools, families, and students. If you would take what you hear from those responsible for the legislation, they would make you believe that they're going to be able to continue to fund public schools in a way that public schools able. To- I'm sorry, I lost track here. If you would take what you hear from those responsible for the legislation, they would make you believe that they're going to be able to continue to fund public schools in a way that makes public schools able to continue to provide quality education. But at the same time, they're still going to provide seven thousand dollars plus dollars to each student to go where they want to go. If you do the math, it doesn't work. The money just does not go that far. Democrats has called during committee debate last week for the Republican majorities to wait for the nonpartisan legislative staff to release a fiscal note on the program before moving forward. The House Speaker Pat Grassley and others pointed to the governor's office report, saying they had enough information to proceed. The Legislative Services Agency released its fiscal analysis on Monday morning. The nonpartisan office's estimates that roughly lined up with the governor's calculations. Private school scholarships will cost the state nearly 107 million dollars in fiscal year 2024, LSA estimated, matching the amount that Reynolds allocated. Once the program is fully phased in, the agency calculated that it will cost the state just under three hundred and forty-five million dollars each year, while the governor estimated that it would cost around three hundred and forty-one million dollars. Webster County is home to three private schools. Both Community Christian School and Saint Paul Lutheran School educate students from preschool through eighth grade, while Saint Edmund Catholic School serves preschool through twelfth grade. Stephanie Cobble Day, CCS principal, said that she understands how it can be financially challenging for families to send their children to private school. She said CCS is excited to continue supporting all of our current families and looking forward to any incoming families we can welcome because the financial barriers are lifted as the state rolls out the Student First Act. She says now parents can make the best choices for their students without being limited by finances, and we are thankful for that. CCS provides families an academically excellent, biblically inter- integrated education, which encourages spiritual development and social responsibility, and an environment where students can develop their God-given gifts and talents. And the school is looking forward to building on that foundation. Cobbledey said. Angie Tracy, vice president of the FDCSD school board, said that she was disappointed to see the legislation signed into law. I believe that parents should have a choice to send their children to their school of choice. I just don't believe that it should be with public dollars," she said. "Public schools are overseen by elected school boards that make sure that public funds are spent appropriately, and with this bill, private schools will not be held to the same standard." Diane Prant, a retired teacher and current FDCSD board member, said that she anticipates little local change as a result of this bill, and said that while Fort Dodge has three quality private religious schools, they can't always provide access to the choices of learning experiences and needs, as well as some advanced high school courses that public schools offers. She also noted that there are 41 Iowa counties that will not benefit from this legislation because there are no private school choices. In those counties, 
Having deeply invested my beliefs and career and much of my community service to our public schools, I am of course dismayed by legislators who supported this bill. Pratt said, instead of investing the 328 private public school districts, they chose to invest equally in the small number of private schools in our state. With the governor signing the bill into law on Tuesday, local communities and school boards now need to focus on what their next steps will be and how they can work together to address the main issues that all schools are facing," said FDCSD board member Lisa Schmidt, or Shimkat. I'm sorry, Lisa Shimkat. Teacher shortages, improving student mental health, and continuing to provide a strong educational environment for students to excel are going to can be what we're focusing upon," she said. Our landscape had changed many times over the last few years, and we have adapted and moved forward. Our district is already focusing on our next steps to continue our mission to provide quality learning experiences for students. Bishop Walker Nicholas of Diocese of Sioux City Schools, which includes St. Edmund, issued a statement following the bill's signing, saying that it was a great day for both private and public school education. He said that we look forward to serving more families in the Diocese of Sioux City who want to enroll their child in a Catholic school. He said, "We're also pleased that the Students First Act will also help parents keep their child in the Catholic school of their choice and assist us in enhancing quality education." With this being only the third week of the legislative session, Corain says that he was blown away when he heard the bill had passed both chambers of the legislature on Monday night. He said, "I know that advocates, as well as those opposing the legislation, were just gearing up for an educated conversation about what this would all mean." There were still experts pouring through the bill to try to answer questions about funding and other aspects. Corain said. He said, "In quote, I don't know if this is the ploy to try and push through quickly before that debate could happen." He said, "Of course, as we all know, the challenge when you rush legislation without all those questions being asked and answered is you typically get legislation that needs to be fixed." I thought that there would be a period of time where everybody was trying to digest the legislation and address concerns that were being raised, but there doesn't appear to be that kind of time. Through the ESA program will begin. Though the ESA program will begin the 2023 to 2024 school year, it will be a while until public schools can see the direct effect. Cochrane said, "There are so many unknowns with this legislation that I don't think anybody is going to really appreciate the impact until we're two or three years down the road." He said, "We're still trying to sort out the complexities that this is going to create for us in terms of staff shortages, recruiting, and retention of quality staffers." The messenger also reached out to administrators from St. Edmund Catholic School and St. Paul Lutheran School, but did not receive a response by press time Tuesday. The full statements from local school leaders can be found on messengernews.net. And before we move on to the next story, there was a photo with the local school officials reacting new law on the first page of Cooper Elementary students working in their classroom. And、uh, the caption continues to read: Some Fort Dodge school officials are concerned about the impact the school voucher bill that was signed into law Tuesday will have on public school funding. We have more headlines to get to now on the first page of the newspaper. FD police investigate incidents at St. Edmund FD Middle School. Two students arrested and charged on Tuesday. This article is written by Kelby Wingard. 
Law enforcement is investigating a pair of similar incidents of threats of violence at two local schools on Tuesday, according to a press release from Fort Dodge Police Captain Dennis Quinn. The department began investigating an incident at St. Edmund Catholic School early Tuesday morning. Mary Gibbs, St. Edmund president and high school principal, shared on the school's Facebook page that a student had made a verbal threat regarding using a firearm at school. Later in the day, shortly before noon, the FDPG was called to Fort Dodge Middle School after a student was telling staff and other students that they had a firearm inside the school. Investigators have found no connection between the two threats and believe they are isolated incidents. Quinn told the Messenger. FDPD patrol officers and criminal investigations division officers, as well as the Webster County Attorney's Office, responded to St. Edmund to investigate that threat. The Fort Dodge Police Department officers were able to peacefully apprehend the student this morning on the school campus. Gib wrote, Gib wrote on the St. Edmunds Facebook page, "A 16-year-old male student was arrested and charged with threat of terrorism, that's a Class D felony, and first-degree harassment, an aggravated misdemeanor." The student was transported to. Sorry, let's move on to page three, where the story continues. That student was moved to the Central Iowa Detention in Eldora, and the case was forwarded to the Webster County Attorney's Office and Juvenile Court Services for adjudication. Following the Fort Dodge Middle School investigation, a 12-year-old male student was arrested and charged with first-degree harassment and aggravated misdemeanor. The student was later released to a parent, and the case is being referred to the Webster County Attorney's Office and Juvenile Court Services for further action. The Fort Dodge Community School District released a statement on the incident, saying that the district administrators and local law enforcement followed the district's policies and procedures to investigate the situation. Our top priority continues to be keeping our students and staff safe in our schools, the statement said. We take all threats seriously and work closely with the police department in investigating all threats. According to police department press releases, there was no credible evidence that the students were ever in possession of a firearm, or that there were, was a firearm on either school's property. The FDPD is continuing to investigate the St. Edmund incident. Anyone with information is encouraged to contact law enforcement. This incident highlights the importance of if you see something, say something. Quinn wrote in the St. Edmund press release, the combination of students and parents, along with the collaborative effort by the St. Edmund school system, Fort Dodge Police Department, and Webster County Attorney's Office, led to this swift resolution. We would like to thank the parents and students impacted by this unfortunate incident for their patience and understanding while law enforcement conducted the investigation. All right, we have one more headline from the front page to get to. This one, the title is "Fire Damages Downtown Fort Dodge Buildings." Cause remains under investigation. This is another article by Kelby Wingert. The cause of a fire in downtown Fort Dodge building remains under investigation as of Tuesday evening. At noon on Tuesday, Fort Dodge Fire Rescue was dispatched to the area of 11th Street and Central Avenue and found heavy smoke coming from.、Uh, 1027 and 1031 Central Avenue. Smoke was coming from the first and second floors and at the roof of the south ends of those buildings. When we arrived on scene, there was smoke blowing across Central Avenue," said Fire Chief Steve Harden. Harden returned. Mounting an aggressive attack, the firefighters were able to contain and extinguish the fire before it spread to more sections of the buildings. 
We had to use saws to cut open the back doors to gain entry. And found fire there and began extinguishing that. Harjan Ratur said, "We could tell that there was fire on the second floor. Also, to get access to that, we had to put some ground ladders up into the windows and get a hose line in there to start putting that fire out." The two buildings, which housed JoJo's Cocktail Lounge, Express Yourself, and More Boutique, and several apartments, occupy a quarter of the city block. Before we get to more of that story, there is an image of the firefighters fighting the fire, with the caption "Fort Dodge Firefighter Paramedic Nick Rowland" on the left, and another firefighter spray water up to the second floor of the garage area of 1227 Central Avenue during a fire on Tuesday afternoon. The buildings were built in 1903 and 1914. For a brief period of time on Tuesday, the future of those buildings appeared in peril, Harden Ritter said. As much as they've renovated it over the years, over 120 years, and the way the smoke was coming out of every crack in the building, for a few moments we thought we might lose a quarter of the block, he said. So great job by fire and rescue crews there to get a stop on that fire. The fire damage was contained to the rear section of 1227 Central Avenue. The businesses on the first floor of that building and the 1031 building, as well as six occupied apartments on the second and third floors at the front of the buildings, sustained heavy smoke damage. Harjan Ratur said, "Jojo's Cocktail Lounge also sustained significant water damage." He said. The occupants of the businesses and apartments were able to escape unharmed. Electric service to the building was shut off due to fire damaging a lot of the wiring. Harjan Ratur said. So the residents of the six apartments will be temporarily displaced. He said the owners of the building were assisting in finding alternative shelter for those residents. A second alarm was called to bring more firefighters to the scene and to be available for other emergency medical and fire responses. Both buildings are owned by Royal Properties LLC of Fort Dodge. Fort Dodge Fire Rescue was assisted by the Fort Dodge Police Department, Webster County Emergency Management, and Mid American Energy Company. There are two more large images to the right of this article.、Uh, on the top right, the caption says that a Fort Dodge firefighter stands on a ladder to pry off wooden planks covering windows on the second floor of 1027 Central Avenue. A fire caused damage to the building's back half on Tuesday afternoon. Bottom right, there is an image that shows water raining down on a Fort Dodge firefighter as he holds up a fire hose during a structure fire in the 1000 block of Central Avenue on Tuesday afternoon. We have time for some more headlines before we get to opinions in a couple of minutes. This story is out of Des Moines.、Um, it's the title is "DM Police Shooting That Killed Two Was Targeted." Officials said that there was nothing random about this. This is an Associated Press article,、uh, and we'll just、uh, cover it a little bit before we head to opinions. An 18-year-old who police say was involved in an ongoing gang dispute walked into the common area of an alternative education program for at-risk students and fatally shot two teenagers in a premeditated attack, chasing one of them down and shooting him several more times when he tried to run, according to a charging document that's released on Tuesday. Police said the shooting on Monday that also left the founder of the Starts Right Here program with life-threatening injuries was a targeted. Attack. The founder, 49-year-old William Holmes, underwent surgery and was in serious condition. Police on Tuesday identified those killed as 18-year-old Gianni Dameron and 16-year-old Rashad Carr.
Holmes, an activist and rapper who goes by the stage name of Will Keeps, joined a gang as a 13-year-old in Chicago, but moved to Iowa more than two decades ago and dedicated his life to helping young people in need, according to his LinkedIn page. 18-year-old Preston Walls of Des Moines was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, and one count of criminal gang participation. He made a brief court appearance on Tuesday, with a preliminary hearing scheduled for February 3rd. Walls is jailed on one million dollars bond. The Polk County Public Defender's Office, which will provide his attorney, declined to comment. Walls was on supervised release for a weapons charge, and he cut off his ankle monitor just 16 minutes before that shooting. Police said. All right, we're just 25 minutes after the hour right now. Let's get to some opinion pieces. All right. This one is titled "Eggs and Issues is Democracy in Action." Forums bring citizen legislators together. Interaction between citizens and the officials they elect to represent them is crucial to a democracy. Citizens must be able to tell the officials what they want and what they don't want. They must also be able to hold the officials accountable for their actions. The elected officials must explain to the citizens why they take the actions they do. In Fort Dodge, there has been an event in place for at least 25 years that brings state and sometimes federal legislators together with citizens. It's called Eggs and Issues. Eggs and Issues is a forum that is held once a month while the Iowa Legislature is in session. The first forum of 2023 will be held Saturday morning. The forum will begin at 8:30 a.m. in the auditorium of the Bioscience and Health Science Center at Iowa Central Community College. The state senators and representatives who serve Webster County are expected to attend. During the forum, the legislators will give opening statements about issues and bills they're working on. Then they will answer the questions asked by the public. The give and take between legislators and the citizens is democracy at work. It is something that everyone should be a part of. We encourage everyone to participate in their democracy by attending eggs and issues and also submitting questions for lawmakers. Here is another opinion piece by Dennis Plotz. He is the chief executive officer of the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance, and the title of this opinion piece says, "Get involved, be better for it." 2022 has come and gone, and like 2021, Fort Dodge and Webster County have continued to grow economically and have continued to outpace comparable areas in economic prosperity and growth. We further continue to recognize some of the reasons behind the economic success, such as good governance. Good leadership, continued community development, enhancing quality of life, and outstanding community collaboration and cooperation. The collaboration has not just been within Webster County, but also, almost as importantly, throughout the region as well, within state and federal government levels. In the past, we did not do as well in becoming involved in building partnerships and good relationships with people and organizations outside our own jurisdictions, but with whom. Many decisions are made that directly and indirectly affect our economy and quality of life. When we participate outside of our own communities, we gain the opportunity to get and see different ways of approaching problems. We can network and exchange ideas, and we have a better opportunity to affect policy and regulation that is established by others that affect us locally.
Only by becoming aware do we gain knowledge, and only by developing relationships with those other decision makers can we become more influential in their decision making. These partnerships and relationships enable all of us to become true and valuable leaders. Any of us can show leadership by being involved and voicing our opinions. But the question is: is always is it good or bad relationship? Just like having a relationship, is it a good or bad relationship? Only with good relationships can we affect decision making that's beneficial to all of us. The city of Fort George and the Webster County Board of Supervisors have enabled the Growth Alliance to contract with Capital Consultants of Iowa to inform and lobby on our behalf at the Iowa legislative level, which has been very effective in keeping us informed, helping to arrange contacts, influencing legislation, and generally provide for better local inputs on economic rules and legislation affecting Webster County. We thank them for seeing the value in this. All right, I would like to get to the obituaries now. We are 29 minutes after the hour now.、Um, the first is Jennifer Bender, 45, of Fort Dodge. She passed away on Monday, January 23, 2023, at her home. Friends may call from 10 a.m. to noon on Friday at Lawford Swayer Funeral Home. Jennifer is survived by her husband Perry Bender Sr., children Mariah Miller, Frejean Mayer Bender. Perry Meyer Bender Jr., Tyreek Yates, Mother Lori Utsky of Ortho, Ortho Mother-in-law Catherine Clark, Sister Jeanette Meyer, and cousin Ramble Holder. She was preceded in death by her father Gerald Jerry Meyer, grandparents Robert and Lois Meyer, Donald and Judith Sellinger, and Aunt Lynette Simonson. Jennifer Lynn Meyer was born January nineteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, in Fort Dodge. She attended Catholic schools and then graduated from Fort Dodge Senior High School. She attended Iowa Central and worked as a CNA. Jen was a CDAC worker and, before she was diagnosed, worked as a property manager. She loved working with special needs and the elderly. Memorials left to the family's discretion. The next, Marjorie Steenhard in Belmond. Funeral services will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday, Ewing Funeral Home in Belmond. Visitation will be held one hour prior to services at the funeral home on Saturday. There's also a website www.ewingfh.com. Keith L. Frisch, of 81 years old, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Monday, January 23, 2023, at his home. Services are pending. Laufer's Wafer Senior Funeral Home is serving that family. Merwin Cook, seventy-six, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Tuesday, January twenty-fourth, twenty twenty-three, at the Paula J. Barber Hospice Home. Services are pending with the Law Laufer Swire Funeral Home. There is also an announcement from the Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services.、Uh, the first is Dolores Schultz. The service is at 11 a.m. Wednesday at the First Baptist Church. Darrell Axness. Visitation is 2 to 5 p.m. on Saturday at the Gunderson Funeral Home. The last one, Sonia Axness Owens. Visitation is 2 to 5 p.m. on Saturday at the Gunderson Funeral Home. 
You are listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Nicole Tam. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to some sports news in today's paper. So the headline in the sports section starts with Fort Dodge Honor Seniors, 8th-ranked Dodgers knockoff Mason City, DM Lincoln. This is by Eric Pratt. Colin Munter is exactly the kind of competitor head coach Bobby Thompson wishes he had more of in the Fort Dodge wrestling room. The Dodger senior worked his way through the ranks and earned a starting spot in his last season on the mat. Munter may not be a star, but Thompson appreciates the sacrifices he made while earning an opportunity to wear FDSH singlet at the varsity level. We need guys like him in our program, Thompson said. Colin waited his turn, worked hard, wrestled junior varsity, and kept at it. Then he gets himself into shape and gets down to 220 pounds, which is a lifestyle choice that will serve him well beyond high school. In this day and age, you don't see young men put in the time, show patience and perseverance, and pay their dues if necessary. He's a strong representative of this senior class. Munter was recognized with classmates Max Bishop, Keaton Nichols, Davison Lockman, and Alexis Ross during senior night. There is an image before we go more into the story of Fort Dodge's Colin Munter going in for a single leg against Mason City on Tuesday in the Dodger gym. Now let's go a little more into this story. Nichols, Davison, Lockman, and Alexis Ross during senior night festivities on Tuesday evening inside the Dodger gym, a Frank Ford Dodge 70 overall, made quick work of both Des Moines Lincoln and Mason City, winning 60-15 and 63-15. The timing was perfect for the 6th-ranked Bishop 2010, who picked up the 99th and 100th fight victories with the pin and a forfeit at 120 pounds. The three-time state qualifier and two-time medalist is now 138 in his career. Bishop's 42nd fall was one of 10 by the Dodgers on Tuesday in less than a minute. Fort Dodge had 14 total pins. Nichols, 22-10, prevailed by fall and forfeit. Munter, 16-18, split his matches. Ross is 29-2 in pursuit of their second consecutive girls' state championship. All five of those kids have shown a level of commitment to our program that should be commended, Thompson said. Again, a lot of the kids these days come up with reasons not to be out for sports or stay active. Wrestling is hard, of course, but I truly believe it makes you a better student and a better person. They lead by doing things the right way. Sophomore 138-pound Coy Davidson, who is recovering from a recent injury, recorded a pair of pins in under a minute to improve to 24. Junior Cal Hartman, 27-10, did the same at 170, building on the momentum from last Saturday's third-place performance at the Ed Winger Classic in Urbandale. Juniors Demarion Ross, 32-3 at 160, and Bo Cowell, 12-18 at 145, had two falls each for the Dodgers. Junior Drew Ayala, 26-1 at 113 pounds. Junior Kane Buttrick, 24-10 at 126. Freshman Riley Brown, 2016 at 132. And freshman Drew Sean Ross, 31-2 at 195, all finished with a pin and a forfeit victory. 
We're getting closer to being at full strength, Thompson said. We're hoping to have our 13 regulars this Saturday for the inaugural Iowa Alliance Conference meet in Des Moines. We haven't had that since Dan Gable Donnybrook in Coralville on December 2nd to 3rd. It's been a steady stream of illnesses and injuries. So it would be nice to settle and be at full strength the rest of the way. The double duel started at 5.40 p.m. yesterday evening and was done exactly two hours later. Saturday's meet is at Des Moines North, beginning at 10 a.m. The Dodgers will be joined by Ames, Marshalltown, Mason City, Waterloo East, Ottumwa, Des Moines Lincoln, Des Moines East, Des Moines Hoover, Des Moines Roosevelt, and the host Polar Bears. More sports news now. This one is the St. Edmund versus Webster City titled Defensive Wall. Lynx Boys Sweep Series versus Gales. This is by Dana Becker in Webster City. The St. Edmund boys struggled to find their shot here Tuesday night against Webster City. The Lynx took advantage, posting a convincing 55-36 victory to complete the season sweep. Ty McKinley scored a game high of 13 points, while Trevin Lyons and Jack Larson each had nine to lead Webster City. For the gals, Jackson Palmer scored 12 points in both Grant Galleys and Aaron Larson, chipped in seven. You know why they're winning? Defense. SEHS head coach Adolph Kosher Dorfer said, They just play really well in defense, and you have to give them credit. If you beat them off the dribble, there's always someone there, and usually with size. They're the best defensive team we have played all year. St. Edmund got within eight at the break after falling behind 15 7, falling the first and 24 9 at one point in the second. We had a bad stretch there, and they were able to get some easy baskets and take control, the coach said. We did some good things. Aaron had a good night, and Sam Miracle did a good job defending Groshemi. It was a dominating third quarter as possible by the Lynx as they outscored the Gals 17-0 to take a commanding 43-18 advantage. Next action for St. Edmund will be Thursday when they return home to face West Bend Mallard in non-conference play. They host Clear Lake on Friday while Webster City heads to Clarion, Clarion Goldfield Dows on Friday night. And our last story stays in basketball. The Lynx topples St. Edmunds girls. This is by Dana Becker in Webster City. After putting together a strong second quarter to get within striking distance here on Tuesday night, the St. Edmund girls couldn't find the rhythm out of the break. Webster City used a 10-2 run into the third to pick up 54-31 victory over the Gales, sweeping the season series between the North Central Conference rivals. We have struggled all year putting the ball in the basket, and that hurt us once again. SEHS head coach C.J. Tracy said, When we got shots off, we did well. The Lynx led 11-4 after the first, but a nice 11-3 rally by the Gales in the second made it just 23-18 at the break. Anna Colicia and Michelle Layton both sank three-pointers during the run. Colicia led St. Edmund with 10 points, while Abby Lawler added 5. For Webster City, Olivia Galantine posted a game-high 22 points, and Olivia Karsh had 11. Anna did a nice job of attacking the basket, Tracy said. She got in foul trouble, so her playing time was limited. 
Abby came in off the bench and played with a lot of energy. We came out flat, but our second five came on and kept us within striking distance there early. We've just got to find a way to bring the same energy we had last Friday night against Humboldt. St. Edmund returns to the court on Thursday when they host West Bend Mallard in non-conference action before concluding the week at home on Friday versus Clear Lake. Webster City, meanwhile, heads to Clarendon Goldfield Dows on Friday evening. All right, let's get to some lifestyle stories now, should we? Um, There's a Dear Annie titled Aftermath of Dating a Narcissist. Dear Annie, after dating a guy who turned out to be a narcissist, my question is, how can I heal? I've tried everything, and I've even felt like I'm over it and I'm okay. But then I have my days. It's like grieving. I fell in love with this man and feel like I let my guard down way too soon, only to be disappointed. Yes, he pursued me heavily, and it's like after supporting me through nursing school, by the time it was close to my graduating, he started to become distant. I am so depressed off and on, I feel like I lost my best friend. What do you suggest? I'm no longer interested, plus he has moved on. This is so not like me to let something like this get to me or have me feeling down. I feel like I lost myself just simply trying to understand. And then I tell myself that he served his purpose in my life, and if it was meant to be, it would have been. How do I deal, and how do I get over this heartbreak? I never in my life thought I would allow someone access to me and not see this coming or notice the red flags. Please help. Signed, Brokenhearted. Dear Brokenhearted, you have no control how your ex-boyfriend treated you, but you have total control over how you respond to it. If he was a true narcissist, he was not your best friend. He might have pretended to be your best friend, but that is not a true, authentic friend. He probably is incapable at this point in his life of being a true friend to anyone because he's not a friend to himself. Allow yourself time to grieve your relationship. It is understandable. It's okay to get sad off and on. Keep doing things for yourself that make you happy before him. Stay close to family and friends and lean on them for comfort. There is strength and vulnerability. The sooner you recognize that, the sooner you'll be able to move through the sadness. Once you have some distance and time away from the relationship, try to get curious and ask yourself what you liked and didn't like in the relationship so that you can learn from the old relationship what you don't want in your new relationship, and don't rule out talking to a good therapist. At the very least, you'll stop beating yourself up for not spotting this guy's personality earlier. And you can send your questions for Annie Lane to dearannie at creators.com. All right, here's another uh, news kind of featurey story out of Concord, California. The title is No More Nuggets, School Lunch Goes Farm to Table for Some. As the fine dining chef at a suburban high school gave samples of his newest recipes, Junior Anahi Nava Flores critiqued a baguette sandwich with Toscano salami, organic Monterey Jack, arugula, and a scratch-made basil spread. This pesto aioli is good. Classmate Kentaro Turner devoured a deli-style pastrami melt on sourdough and moved on to free-range chicken simmered in chipotle broth with Spanish-style rice. Everything is delicious. There are not words typically uttered in school cafeterias. The food served at school systems outside San Francisco, Mount Diablo Unified, reflects a trend away from the mass-produced reheated meals. Its lunch menus are filled with California-grown fruits and vegetables, grass-fed meats, and recipes that defy the stereotype of uh, inedible school food. 
Among American schoolchildren, these students are in the lucky minority. Making fresh meals requires significant investment, and in many areas, an overhaul of how school kitchens have operated for decades. Inflation and supply chain disruptions have only made it harder on school nutrition directors, widening gaps in access to affordable, high-quality food. What's more, federal money to boost lunch budgets has declined. The government last year ended a pandemic-era program offering free meals to everyone. A few states, such as California, have been paying to keep meals free for all students, but most states went back to charging all but the neediest kids for meals. Increases in money from California's state government have made it possible for Mount Diablo to buy fresher local ingredients and hire the chef John Gerson. A veteran of Michelin-starred restaurants, local farms, bakers, creameries, and fishermen now supply most ingredients to the district, which serves 30,000 students from wealthy and low-income communities east of San Francisco. On a recent January morning, student taste testers were sampling Gerland's latest creations. His daily specials have ranged from barbecue spare ribs to fresh red snapper on a whole-grain brioche, brioche bun. I love the idea of serving students better food," said the chef, who quit restaurants during the pandemic when serving a wagyu beef and caviar crowd lost its luster. School cafeterias should feel like restaurants and not fast food chains. School systems elsewhere can only dream of such offerings. Financially, we're dying right now," said Patty By- Bilberry, a nutrition director for Arizona's Scottsdale Unified School District. It charges students two dollar and eighty-five for lunch, but that no longer comes close to covering the district's cost. A staff shortage makes it impossible to cook more food from scratch," she said. The school relies on mass-produced food that is delivered and then reheated. The pizza, it's done. You bake it. The spicy chicken sandwich, you heat it and you put it on a bun. The corn dogs, you just have to wrap it," she said. Some students give the food positive reviews. I eat spicy chicken every day. That's my favorite," said Hunter Kimball, a sixth grader at Tonella Middle School, where almost 80 percent of students still qualify for free or reduced price meals. Eighth grader Arcelli Canelli says is more critical. The school serves an orange chicken that she says makes her cringe. The meat is a different color, she said. At a recent lunchtime, Arcelli picked up a chicken Caesar salad, knowing that the croutons were bland and hard. The chicken tastes okay, but I want them to cook it longer and add more seasoning. And when the bell rang, she tossed most of her salad in the garbage. That was a pretty fun story, huh? School lunches are、uh, always something to be talked about.、Uh, we do have some time left before we wrap up for today. How about we take a look at some financial news、um, in this section? This one's actually quite interesting. Chicago traffic jams the worst in the U.S. Chicago people in Chicago lost more time to traffic congestion last year than drivers in any other U.S. metro area, but the windy city was beaten by London as tops for congestion around the world. Mobility analytics company Inrex. Inc. said that its annual congestion study that Chicago drivers, on average, lost 155 hours to traffic jams. In London, that number was worse by one hour. Paris ranked number three, followed by Boston, New York, Bogota, Colombia, Toronto, Philadelphia, Miami, and Palermo, Italy.
And to round out the top ten, as the study said, across the U.S., traffic delays were still below pre-pandemic levels in more than 60 percent of urban areas. While weekday miles traveled were nine percent lower than before the novel coronavirus took hold, hybrid home office work schedules brought some commuters back, but are still keeping traffic down in many cities. Congestion cost the average U.S. driver eight hundred and sixty-nine dollars in time lost in two thousand and twenty-two, up three hundred and five dollars from two hundred twenty-one, largely due to higher fuel costs. Enrique says that it pulled anonymized data from cell phones, cars, trucks, and cities to make calculations of travel times, trip characteristics, and the impact of congestion within cities. A company spotlight caught off track looks at Union Pacific. It slumped on Friday after the railroad reported its fourth quarter profit dropped four percent as severe winter weather snarled shipments in late December. Omaha, Nebraska-based Union Pacific earned $1.6 billion, or $2.67 per share, in the fourth quarter. That missed analyst targets of $2.75 per share, and compares with $1.7 billion, or $2.66 per share, a year earlier. Revenue grew 8% in the period as the railroad increased prices, added more fuel surcharges, and delivered more freight. Or freight, but that was more than offset by expenses, which rose 14%. Most key performances measures deteriorated during the quarter as the railroad struggled to hire enough employees in key locations. The railroad's average headcount is up 4%, and it's been hiring throughout the past year, but it still needs more crews and maintenance workers. Uh, there were some national headlines that I wanted to include if we have time, and we do have time. So let me look for that real quickly.、Um, this is the Justice Department suing Google over online ad dominance.、Um, this is from Washington and the Associated Press. The Justice Department in eight states filed an antitrust suit against Google on Tuesday, seeking to shatter its legend monopoly on the entire ecosystem of online advertising as a hurtful burden to advertisers, consumers, and even the U.S. government. The government alleges that Google's plan to assert dominance in online ads has been to neutralize or eliminate rivals to acquisitions and to force advertisers to use its products by making it difficult to use competitors' offerings. It's part of a new, if slow and halting, push by the U.S. to rein in big tech companies that have enjoyed largely unbridled growth in the past decade and a half. The antitrust suit was filed in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia. Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a press conference on Tuesday that, "quote For 15 years, Google has pursued a course of anti-competitive conduct that has halted the rise of rival technologies and manipulated the mechanics of online ad auctions to force advertisers and publishers to use its tools." Another brief story: Classified documents found at Pence's home too. His lawyer says this is out of New York in the Associated Press. Documents with classified markings were discovered in former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana residence last week. His lawyer says the latest in a string of recoveries of papers meant to be treated with utmost sensitivity from the homes of current and former top U.S. officials. A small number of documents taken into the FBI custody last Thursday were inadvertently boxed and transported to former Vice President's home at the end of the last administration. 
Pence's lawyer Greg Jacob wrote in a letter to the National Archives shared with the Associated Press. He said that Pence has been unaware of the existence of sensitive or classified documents at his personal residence until a search last week, and that he was understanding that the high importance of protecting sensitive and classified information, and stands ready to cooperate with any appropriate inquiry. All right, and that does it for most of the main headlines in today's edition. We do have a few minutes left, so just want to recap a few of our top headlines in the Fort Dodge Messenger. The first, again, the school choice law passes. Iowa lawmakers okay the public money to be used for private school students, and local lawmakers are supporting that school bill as well. Another top headline: Fort Dodge police investigate incidents at St. Edmund and Fort Dodge Middle School. Two students were arrested and charged. On Tuesday, another headline in Fort Dodge: a fire damaged downtown Fort Dodge buildings, and the cause remains under investigation today. That fire again happened at noon on Tuesday when rescue crews were called to the 11th Street and Central Avenue and found heavy smoke coming from 1027 and 1031 Central Avenue, those historic buildings and businesses in the area. Um, some big news out of Des Moines. The investigation continues into the murder that happened at the uh, alternative school, the Starts Right Here school.、Um, we didn't get to finish that story earlier, so want to、uh, catch you up on that. So investigators say in the charging document that Walls, the suspect、um, that was arrested for this incident. Uh, he is the 18-year-old Des Moines resident, Preston Walls. He had a 9-millimeter semi-automatic handgun with a high-capacity extended magazine concealed on him when he entered a common area of the program. The affidavit said that Holmes tried to escort Walls out, but Walls pulled away, drew the gun, and shot the two teenagers several times. The document said that one victim tried to flee, but Walls chased him down and shot him multiple more times. The document blacked out the name of the victim except the. First letter of the last name C, indicating that it was Carr. Holmes was struck by gunfire. His family said in a statement on Tuesday that he has a quote long recovery ahead, and we're deeply appreciative for the care he is receiving. Despite his injuries, Holmes is now more determined than ever to continue with his work with at-risk youth, and looks forward to once again working hand in hand with other community leaders on the mission of Starts Right Here. They wrote. Responding officers saw a suspicious vehicle leaving the area and stopped it. Police said that Walls ran out and was found hiding in a brush pile with a nine-millimeter handgun next to him. The ammunition magazine, which has a capacity of 31 rounds, contained three. Police said, according to the affidavit, the shooting was captured on surveillance video, and Walls' clothing and his Glock firearm matched those seen on the video. The Starts Right Here board of directors said in a statement. That classes were canceled for the remainder of the week, and that grief counselors will be available. The program, which began in 2021, helps at-risk youths in grades nine through twelve, and is affiliated with the Des Moines School District. These actions are contrary to all that we stand for, and points out more must be done. The board said, "These two students and hope and a future that will never be realized." Demerson's father, Gary Demerson, 37 years old, said that his son was on track to graduate this spring. He planned to attend Barber College and become a barber, just like his dad. Gary Demerson said that he has known Holmes for years and reached out to him personally to get his son enrolled and starts right here. Despite the police claim that the shooting was gang-related, he said that his son was not involved in a gang, describing him as family-oriented with a goofy sense of humor.
He just had one of those personalities that when he came in the room, everybody kind of gravitated towards him. Gary Demerson said, "Johnny Demerson turned 18 on Friday." His father said. Damerson said that his son and Carr were best friends. He described Carr as very respectable, cool, and soft-spoken. Last year, Walls was charged with three counts of alleging that he knowingly resisted or obstructed a West Des Moines police officer while armed with a firearm and intoxicated. Court records show his attorney in that case, Jake Fur Furerham, says that. In the incident last May, Walls was part of gathering of young people that police approached. While they were trying to sort out what was happening, Walls, who was 17 at the time, took off. Because he was armed while fleeing from police, he was charged, according to Furlerum. All right, we are towards the end of this newscast today. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader Nicole Tam. Thanks so much for spending your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.